you would take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, we'll be looking this morning at verses 5 through 7. Um, I think I mentioned the first first week I preached in this text that the original plan was to preach the first 14 verses in one sermon. Steve Jacobs said if if you'd have tried to preach those 14 verses in one sermon, it would have been eight hours a day for at least five days. And uh, he's probably right. There is a lot of depth here. And uh, because these words are so significant and so well known, and so often misunderstood, unfortunately. Uh, we are dwelling on this, especially these first paragraphs, uh, more intently. Uh, it may allow for us to speed up in the future, but uh, we're going to kind of take this one step at a time. As you, I'm sure, are already there, I'll read that in just a moment. I do want to, last week I, I did not uh, call attention to the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. He was born in 1509. Um, I didn't do that for several reasons. One being that, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, as rumors go, our, our community tends to think we champion John Calvin at this church. And, uh, you know, it's obvious they've never visited Grace Fellowship because outside of today, I've rarely mentioned his name. And then this week, after having overlooked it, not overlooked it personally, but overlooked it in our service, I really fell under conviction. Because there is no human outside of, uh, outside of the Bible who has shaped and formed not just the church as we know it, but all of history as we know it. You and I live in a free country because a man named John Calvin pressed for freedom in Geneva. And his teachings inspired generations of men who became our founding fathers. The pilgrims or Calvinists, proud of that label. Now that label... He, he is the most formative man in Western history. That's not from a church's perspective. That's from world historian perspective. But he is also one of the most demonized men. Probably because he is one of the most godly men. And so I overlooked him last week. His birthday is July the 10th. And we didn't mention but I do want to mention, and it also gave me time to read over uh, three quarters of a book that I purchased that I want to, I, I could have recommended it without reading it, but I'd rather read it. It's this little book, you see how small it is, a, a Portrait of Calvin is the name of it, by T.H.L. Parker. Parker's 93 now, and he's an Anglican minister. And I, I do want to... Um, Read just a paragraph here. I'm eager for people to know Calvin, not because he was without flaws, or because he was the most influential theologian of the last 500 years, which he was, or because he shaped Western culture, which he did, 
But I want people to know John Calvin because he took the Bible so seriously. And because what he saw on every page was the majesty of God and the glory of Christ. Calvin continues to inspire me because of his relentless focus on the greatness of God. He did not always have eyes for the majesty of God. His medieval training left him in spiritual darkness. And Parker says this, that he was taught to think in the University of Paris, the most renowned school in his day. He was taught to think in a room with the windows shut. But then light dawned. These are the words of Calvin about his conversion. I saw just as if light had broken in upon me. In what a pigsty of error I had wallowed. And how polluted and impure I had become. I recommend that you read this book. Not because he is inerrant. He was a very flawed man, as all men are. But because there has been no other human outside the Word of God that saw Christ so clearly and held God so high. We do thank God for men like John Calvin. It's right for us to recognize them even after they're past. And it, and it causes me to think we will all die and our own families won't remember us in 500 years. Think of the significance of a life spent living for the glory and majesty of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The impact is 500 years later. Like Him, hate Him, they're still talking about Him. Not because of who He is, but because of the God He served. So I challenge you to read it. I challenge you to think deeply about the Word of God, which He will cause you to do, because he was dogmatic about it. And he taught expositionally. I don't claim to preach like him. I've read some of his sermons. His sermons, over 850 that we have recorded and contained in volumes. He, and he died 42 volumes of his life works. Things he had written and things he had preached. 42 volumes still with us, preserved. You can buy them if you want to. It'd take you the rest of your life to read them. They're in small print, double columns, 42 volumes. What an amazing legacy he has left in preaching. His lectures are famous to his students. His most renowned commentaries, those on John and Ephesians. My Christian thought was shaped more by his commentary on the Ephesians than any book, any book outside the Word of God. If you ever find it in any form or fashion, the commentary on the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, buy it at whatever cost. Study God's Word and read along with Him as He looks at the text. It's really amazing. Let's dive into this text. Uh, enough about Calvin. Uh, but I do want to mention him. And I am a Calvinist, and if you want to talk about that, sometime I will. I'd like to define it for you instead of letting the naysayers define 
I'd like to define it. And uh, I think I'm a, I'm a Calvinist because he believed in the Bible, and I believe in the Bible. And I don't know how you believe in the Bible and don't become a Calvinist. Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at this text. John 14, verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father who sent me. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. I emphasize the way I did on purpose. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, The One True and Living Way. Because this, these descriptions, the way, the truth, the life, are not general, they are very specific. And they are applied, they are applied as descriptive terms of who Jesus is. Last week, I, I, I talked with you about the first uh, two verses 2 through 4. We talked about heaven, the way home. And we talked about the fact that you can't get home, which is heaven, as we established it, without knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I described home for you maybe in a way you've never thought of home. And that being... You need three things to have a home. There must be a physical place. No question about that. There must be a physical place if it's going to be called home. There must be communion with God. And there must be communion with fellow believers. That's the way I described home. And when I say the way home is Jesus Christ, He is God. Therefore, if you know Him, you know God. And that gets to today's message. That's the whole Basis of today's message. If you know Him, Jesus, you know God. If you don't know Jesus, then you do not know God. No matter how hard you may strain to say that you do. And in my description, I'm, maybe after the message talking with Aaron, maybe I was overzealous on one point, and that is my description of the garden. I want to clear that up. I do not mean to imply that the world in general was out of order. It was not out of order. It, it, it was it was not the garden, but it was not out of order. Because God, when He created it, said it was good. Not, not, not just speaking of the garden, but of all of the creation. So it was not out of order. But there was something special about the garden, wasn't there? And what became so special about that was this place, physical place, the garden, communion with God. It's where they walked with God in the cool of the day. And then they had communion with one another there in the garden. It was their home. And they were driven from their home. Relationship was reestablished. And then we talked about all of the, the pictures in the, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis. Cain, Abraham, Moses, all looking for a home. And their home was where? Well, in Abraham and Moses' case, their home was heaven. As a matter of fact, we didn't read the verses. But if you want to read them in Hebrews 11, in what's known as the Hall of Faith, 
then there in the description of Abraham, it says that he lived by faith with his eyes set on a city whose architect was God and whose foundation was not on the earth. His home ultimately was not Palestine, but was heaven. It was that city which he was straining for. Home. Home for Moses was not Palestine. Home for Moses was Christ. It was fellowship with God. It was heaven. And we know that because the writer, that same writer of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 11 that he despised the riches and wealth of Pharaoh, Moses did, and chose to dwell with the people of God. Why? Because he set a higher value on Christ than he did on all the riches of Egypt. A value was set in Moses' mind on home being with Christ. The value was much higher than that, than a palace in Egypt and all the wealth of the richest nation in the world in his day. And so home is the theme here. And he's bringing comfort, we remember. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, was the first verse. Two weeks ago now, three weeks ago, we spoke about that first verse in chapter 14, which tied Peter and his questions of Jesus there in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, you can't follow me, Peter. Matter of fact, you will deny me. And this caused such great upheaval of emotion. It had to. And all the disciples, think about it. Peter, the leader of the little band of disciples, the vocal leader, is not going to make it. He's going to deny Christ. He's not going to be with him. If Peter can't make it, how can we? And he's already revealed that Judas, our money keeper, our most trusted companion, is not going to make it. He's going to more than deny, he's going to betray Jesus. If Judas and Peter won't make it, surely then Nathaniel had to think, I'm out. Judas, the just, had to think, I'm, I've, I have no shot. I have no way of making it. And then Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 14, brings that peace which we've talked about. And his focus is on God. Believe in God, believe in me. Right? There is a home for you. I'm preparing the way through the cross. That was the preparation. He's not the eternal carpenter, we said, is he? He's not up there with hammer in hand, tool belt around the waist, building little places for people to live when they die. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus completed the preparation on the cross. When he died, the way was set, the way was made. The entrance into the Holy of Holies of heaven was paved by his blood. And in passing, I mentioned at the close of the message after reading Hebrews 9 and part of 10, I mentioned the analogy of Hebrews being that the doorposts of heaven are covered with the blood of Christ. The utensils are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Everything is covered with the blood of Christ in the heavenly temple. That should draw us into our remembrance of the Old Testament. When the death angel was coming over the Egypt, what did God say? Kill that lamb and sprinkle his blood over, smear his blood over the doorposts of your home, and everyone in that home will be safe. And so our way home is Jesus Christ. Now, 
It may seem repetitive, but that's exactly where we're going again today. We're going to look at the way, the one true and living way, Jesus Christ. This is the sixth of seven statements made by Jesus known as the I Am Statements. He first said in in, uh, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Then in 8 verse uh, 12, Jesus said that he was, I am the living water, the fountain of living water. Then he goes on in chapter 10 to say, I am the door of the sheepfold. And then later in chapter 10, in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. And in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 25, he, make, he says, he makes his fifth statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Now we come to verse four, 6 of chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the final I am statement, which John uses to organize his material in this book, the teachings of Jesus Christ are organized around these I am statements. The last one being in chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, the true vine. All of these statements are exclusive statements of Him being God in the flesh. But there is no more exclusive statement. No statement in the Bible which is more exclusive than the one we look at today. This statement is the one that angers the lost world, other religions, and causes them to call out to us, As if we are arrogant. You've heard that charge, I'm sure. You arrogant Christians. You think you're the only ones who know the way. How dare you try to shove your beliefs on me? Don't tell me how to think, they might say. But this verse leaves us no compromise. This verse leaves us no room to compromise or play politics with the gospel. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're an underliner, a circler, a note taker in your Bible, the words you should focus on are the smallest words in this text. It's the article, the. It's caused many to stumble. If he would just say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, everybody in the world would stand up and applaud him as a great teacher. The problem is, he very specifically said, I am the way, the truth, the life. So let's look at this statement even closer than we already have. Let's look. And see what Jesus says. Jesus is the exclusive way, truth, and life. According to verses 5 and 6. Tom, and I, this is an honest question from a humble man. I, I may uh, ruffle a few feathers even today with this statement. Because commonly, Thomas is shown to be a doubter. And that, that has, is a true statement. He, he doubts He has questions. He struggles to understand faith. He doesn't get it. He's not perfect. He's a flawed man. But he seems to be honest from everything we see in the Scriptures and very humble. 
This shows his humility to me, both his honesty and his humility. Look at the question. Jesus says this very uh, straightforward statement, and you know the way to where I'm going in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. If you go back to verse 36 in, uh, in chapter 13, you see where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. You see that? The focus has always been on the way, hasn't it? There's four statements made by different four different apostles, and all of them are going to focus around the way. I want you to look at them with me. In this section of John, there's four statements made by the apostles, and they all focus around this idea of the way. Look in Peter's statement in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? He's wanting to know, where are you going? What is the way? Where are you going? Then we see in verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. It's humility. He's confused. I mean, you just said we know where you're going and you know we know the way. I don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? The way is the focus. Look at Philip's statement in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Now that one's not quite as conclusive, but we can kind of hear it in Philip's inflection, can't we? When we read the text, you can see he's still asking Thomas's question rephrased. Well, Jesus didn't give a direct answer. He still hadn't told us where he's going. Show us the Father. He mentioned the Father, though. Show us the Father. And that's enough. If you'll show us the Father, the implication of Philip's statement, if you'll show us the Father, then we'll know where you're going. We'll know the way. Show us the Father. The way is the focus. How do we get there? Then look in verse 22. Judas, the one called Just. Look what he says. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Again, it's not quite as straightforward as Thomas and Peter, but it's the same idea. How is it that we're going to see you, but nobody else is going to see you? How are we going to understand the way, and nobody else understands the way? These questions give Jesus the opportunity to teach the disciples the way, and teach us also. Through teaching them. And as a side note, as I was studying this, I was thinking about this this week. It's really a side note, a sidebar, a rabbit, whatever you want to call it. But it's important. Parents, I was convicted of this. Parents, we need to be careful how we hush the questions of our children. You know what we're all guilty of it, don't you? And in adults in general, aren't we guilty of it? Let's be honest together. We're all guilty of it. You're cooking dinner. Little Johnny comes running in. He's got five questions that are just burning him. And what do we do? Go ask your sister. Go talk to your dad. We're bothered by little Johnny's questions. If we're not careful, little Johnny will stop asking questions. And we'll lose the opportunity in the audience to teach them. To teach them. questions from your children or from your disciple, the person who you're teaching and training in the faith are very important. Jesus' teachings often come from the questions of his disciples. Think about it. And the questions of others. I mean, he's always answering questions. And this isn't a new idea. The church taught believers through what's called catechism. It's a method of teaching by question and answer. Questions are important. Now, that's just a side note. 
I'm not trying to make too big a deal out of that, but I do want you parents and grandparents and just adults in general, don't push children away. Don't push them away. When they come with their questions, treat their questions seriously. Answer their questions to the best of your ability. Root your answer in the Word of God. If you don't know the answer, by all means admit you don't know the answer and go with them to learn the answer. But don't just shoo them out because they'll stop asking and they'll stop at that point learning. So, Jesus has these four questions. We're in the second of these four questions. Thomas is saying a very honest statement, a very honest question from a very what I perceive to be a very humble man. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? If you don't know the destination, Lord, if we don't know the destination, how can we know the road map that leads us there? There's just not any way. It's logical what he's reasoning here. It's a very logical statement. Jesus, we don't know the way to the Father. Help us understand. That's really what he's saying. I don't get it. I don't understand. Thomas is asking a very logical question that's focused on a very physical reality. At this point, the disciples are still very physical in their understanding of what's going to happen. They haven't quite grasped the spiritual nature of what Jesus is teaching. They still think there's going to be a revolution. They're going to be on the front end of it. Jesus is the Messiah that will alleviate their pressure and their oppression from Rome, I think. And Thomas is saying, we don't really understand this. He's admitting, I don't get it. I don't understand. It's a very physical focus, not a spiritual focus. He's guilty of, it's easy to beat up on Thomas, isn't it? We often do it in messages and songs and, and preaching and teaching. We beat up on poor Thomas as if he's some dissenter. He's not a dissenter. He just is a sinner like you and I, struggling with his faith, trying to understand the tough reality of how do we know God? How do I come to a good grasp and understanding of who God is? So it's an honest question from a humble man, and this is an honest answer from the glorious teacher. I mean, there's no greater teacher than Jesus, and yet He doesn't seem to give a direct answer, does he? He doesn't just give him the simple, straightforward, I'm going to die on the cross, Thomas, then I'm going to go to the Father, then you're going to see all that, and then when you die, you're going to come with me because you have faith in me. He gives him a more mysterious answer. It's a very straightforward answer, but it's not to the point of the question. Now, Jesus isn't avoiding Thomas. He's rather driving Thomas to a deeper level. Thomas is focused on the surface and Christ is driving him deep. Thomas is looking for what's the road map and Jesus is saying, know the road. Don't worry about every twist and turn. You need to know the road. Do you understand? That's why he answered the way he did. Thomas, you're worried about the direction and the turns and the twists and all the inevitable changes and things that are going to happen down there. Don't worry about that. Know the road. There's a confidence in knowing the road, isn't there? I just took a trip down to Panama City and we traveled 331. And you know how I know? I have confidence in how to get to Panama City. I go to Montgomery. You can go any way you want to. But I go to Montgomery, I take 331 and go straight down. Some people take 231. Some people go to Troy and they take 84. I know there's lots of different. But I know that way. And I'm confident of that way. 
I'm not worried about the turns and the twists and all those things that might come along, the other things that might impede my quick travel, a wreck or anything else. You know why? Because I have confidence that if I stay on that road, I'm going to end where I want to be. I have confidence in the way. That's what Jesus is saying. Thomas, stop worrying about everything that you don't know. Trust the one thing you do know. You know me. You know the way. I am the way. And we need that same rebuke or answer, don't we? Often you, and some of you came in this morning struggling with faith and struggling with reality because they don't seem to match. And right now you're in the worst of situations and you've taken a quick, hard turn to the right and you missed it. You know, you're you're struggling. Some kind of catastrophe. I don't know what it might be. And you're now struggling with the same thing. How do we know the way? We don't know where we're even going. I mean, where is heaven? And you get into this mind game. And Jesus' answer to that is, you don't need to know exactly where you're going or the way you, the exact twists and turns along the way. You just need to know the way. You don't need to worry about all the other things of life. Worry to know me. Strive to know me. I am the way. And so he focuses on this exclusivity of the way. It's He is the way. And his, his answer, the key to his answer is that little word, the. I said that earlier and I repeat it again. Jesus did not say he is a way. As if one among many. He said, I am the way. You know, all of the world religions whatever you may think of. There is no world religion. There is no religious teacher, no philosopher who has ever made this claim. Now, you might think of some like David Koresh and others who were cultic leaders. But if you remember Charles Manson and others, if you remember, what did they claim that they were? in some way, an incarnation of Jesus Christ. They were Jesus come a second time. They never claimed independently to be the way. They claimed to be the way, Jesus, as these cultic leaders. But in the Muslim faith, there's no claim that Muhammad is the way. He is not the way. He's clear in his teaching. He has a way. It's a religious method by which you might attain acceptance with God, but he himself is not the way. Confucius, Buddha, the Hinduistic faith, the Eastern religions, the New Age philosophies, they all know a way, but they are not themselves the teachers the way. Jesus is saying something very radical. I am the way. I'm not telling you a way. I am the way. You see the big difference here. It's not about the P's and Q's and the getting the I's dotted and the T's crossed and all the religiosity. It's no me. If you know me, then you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you have a home. If you don't know me, you cannot know the Father, and therefore you have no home in heaven. Big difference. Christianity, unlike all other religions, is a relationship with the living God. Through the God incarnate, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. He is exclusive in his statement. He doesn't allow for us to play politics. 
He doesn't allow for us to compromise. I was so saddened just last week in the Anderson Star. They printed the AP article where uh, Rick Warren spoke at the Muslim gathering, the National Muslim Convention, trying to bridge the gap. There's no way to bridge the gap. They're on a totally different path. They are going to an idol, a satanic idol, not God. We're going to God. That's not arrogance. That's believing the Word of God. It's arrogant for them to claim they've found the way when the way has been revealed in the written Word of God through the Word of Jesus Christ. That's arrogance. When someone charges you as a Christian with being arrogant because you know the way, you tell them, no, I'm so dumb. I have to read the Word of God and trust the living Creator. That's all I've got. I'm not smart enough to go your way. I'm not intelligent. Sometimes we're so scared. So scared. We need not be scared. We have the way. His name is Jesus Christ. And it is exclusive. But it is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus is very clear in His other teachings that the way is through crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That's how He will prepare the way. That's how He will map the course. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns us, Come in through the narrow gate, for broad is the gate, and broad is the way which leads to destruction. How can they all be wrong and we be right? Because Jesus said it was that way. There are many who will find that way, the broad path. And they'll find it one of three ways. Paul tells us in Romans they'll find it either through nature. You've heard these guys, haven't you? If I offend you, I'm sorry. Oh, I don't have to go to church, preacher. When I'm on hole number nine, hitting that approach shot, I look around me, everything's green and blue and beautiful, and I say, man, there's got to be a God. That's my religion. Just so I'm not, I'm an equal offender. And my background's hunting. Man, I'm closest to God when I'm sitting in that tree stand and that buck's coming in. I get more praying in there than I do any other time of the week. That's a joke. That's a lie. You can't find God that way. Paul says that leads to death and destruction. That's in Romans chapter 1. Nature reveals to us that there is a God, but doesn't give us any hope to know that God, just simply that there is one. We look around, and the response has always been idolatry. If you get to the bottom of it, what that person who's on the golf course is worshiping is not God in heaven, but God of the golf course. That club in his hand and the ball flying straight and going in the hole. That hunter ain't worshiping God of heaven. He's worshiping the God of the hunt. The bigger the buck, the greater the God. And he, you can find it. There's people now. I just picked on us because, but there's people that do this, don't they? Through everything, through this nature talk. You know, the way they're going to get to God is hugging a tree, saving a whale, cleaning up oil slicks. You can't get to God that way. There's only one way. His name is Jesus Christ. You can't meet him under a tree necessarily by looking at the tree. I mean. But you get Him through the Word, through the Word of God. 
And so we have the way. You can try to find God through nature, but you will fail. You can try to find God through morality. That's chapter 2 of Romans, isn't it? There's a law. And there was people who were trying to keep the law. They were good people. But in the end, what you will find is disaster. Because in your keeping the law, you'll realize you fail more than you keep. And you will do one of two things. You will either reject the morality and run to hedonism, which is what most people do. Or you will move to the third category, which is chapter 3, which is religion. You can't keep the law, so you create 600 plus laws and make that your God. I'm a good person. I'm doing what God would want me to do. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the Jews have done. That's what a lot of people in our churches are doing. You may be one of them. You can't find God that way. You can't know God that way. How can you know God? Through the way, Jesus Christ. Jesus does something very revolutionary that we often overlook because we're so accustomed to this verse. He changes our focus from what we might do to find God to who we might know so that we might know God. He changes the whole focus of Thomas. He changes our whole focus. When you come into grips with who Jesus is, you will know God. Not before that. You can't find him any other way. So he gives this honest answer. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. Aletheia. He is not only the truth, which we're going to get to, the ultimate truth of the gospel, but he is the truth. He is all truth. Anything that is true comes from him. Anything that is true. You say two plus two has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Yes, it does. Mathematics works because we have an orderly God who is an established and orderly creation. If not, then we have no reason to believe that two plus two will always equal four. All truth comes from God. When you're doing your work, moms, as you're raising your children, do not discount the importance of math and science and English and all the truths that they contain. Because everything that is true in those subjects is only true because of who Jesus Christ is. That's what Colossians teaches us. He is, he is the originator of all things. And He holds all things together in verse 17. If it's true, it is true because of who He is. We know truth only because of who He is. I was thinking about it as I stopped off at the hospital uh, Friday and went in and saw Barry and Justin. What a miracle of God that you can take a kidney from one man's body and put it in his nephew and the thing cranks up and works. And his levels have gone from out of range to normal in less than 24 hours. That is a miracle. And you know what I thought of? Not so much, although I'm very grateful there are men and women and who give themselves to study and perfect those techniques. I'm not discounting them. But they only know how to do that because we serve a gracious and kind and good God. They would have never discovered transplants unless God allowed it through the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, 
Focus your mind on this thing. Because in the pursuit of truth, the real pursuit of truth, many have come across the ultimate truth. There's no question that you can't be saved by knowing math or English or science or medicine or any other truth. There's no question. I'm not saying you can be saved through those things. There's only one way. But he's not only those truths, he is the ultimate truth, the gospel. He is the gospel. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us the gospel is the light of the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He is the life. Not just physical life, which he is, by the way. John chapter 1 says he created all things, and all things exist through him. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Without him, all that was made could not have been made. He is physical life. You breathe and move and have your being, as Paul quoted the Greek philosopher in Acts chapter 17. You live, breathe, and have your moving because of Jesus Christ. He is physical life. Your heart is beating because He allows it to beat. You draw breath because He allows you to draw breath. But He's not only the physical life, He's the spiritual life. That's the more abundant life He's taught us about in John chapter 10. I don't just want you to have life. I want you to have abundant life, spiritual life, everlasting life, life without end. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the beauty of John 14, verse 6. He's answering a simple question from a humble man. How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. Jesus says, don't worry so much about all the physical realities. Worry about the man, Jesus Christ. I am the way the truth, and the life. We as Christians are the only people on the face of the earth that make this claim because our leader, Jesus Christ, is the only one who claimed this amazing claim. Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. Now I've said this. The the way to God is exclusively through Jesus. Look at verse 6, part B. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. There's no way around it. You cannot compromise on this point. Many have tried in efforts to reach out to Muslims and Jews, the other ancient religions of the world. They've tried to to make a hybrid to bridge the gap. It's called syncretism. Bring Christianity into their religion and then bring them out of their religion. You can't do it. Because at some point they beg the question. And then you have to answer with the gospel. And when you do, you will offend them. You can't remove the stone of offense. His name is Jesus. He is the center of our faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you remove Him, we have no faith. We have no hope. We have no way. The way to God is clearly revealed so that rejecting this way is arrogance. You're an arrogant man or woman. I say this with all assurance. You are the most arrogant man or woman on the face of the earth if you believe your way is preferable over the way given by God. You are the most arrogant person. 
on the face of the earth. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. That's the last thing I would say about this text in verse 7. If you know Jesus, then you know the Father. Which is going to set us up for next week in verse 8 in Philip's statement. But let's look at it for just a quick moment. You must have have true and full knowledge of Jesus, first of all. Look in verse 7, the first part. If you had known me, you can't know God and not know Jesus. You must have full knowledge of God, of Jesus. You might not have complete knowledge, but you must have a full working knowledge of who He claimed to be. You cannot be saved ignorant of who Jesus is. I came to faith and then I understood, I, I, then I knew about Jesus. No, you came to faith when you knew Jesus. When you come to know Jesus, then you've come to the faith. And it's not just full knowledge, but it's true knowledge, intimate knowledge. It's not just facts on a page. You know the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this message is not that popular any longer. And it may offend some of you. It may bore some of you. Just to be honest. If it does, that speaks of your relationship with this man. The lack thereof. You can't say I'm bored with Christ. Oh, but I'm safe. I'm going to heaven. No. Because you'd be eternally bored. For home is not just a place, but it's communion. With God. If you're bored with communion with God here, you will be eternally bored there. He wouldn't have such. He wouldn't have such. Heaven will not be filled with bored people. Heaven will be filled with those who glorify and magnify the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. You must have true and full knowledge of Jesus to know Him and to know the Father. If you have true and full knowledge of Jesus, intimate, true knowledge of Jesus, then you will know the Father. It's, an, it's, a, it's a given. Look at the second part of verse 7. You would have known my Father also. Jesus says there's no way you can know me, really know me, and not know who the Father is. I and the Father are one is what He's saying. So it's therefore impossible for there to be other ways than Jesus, isn't it? If you just think about it logically, if you must know Him to know the Father, then there can be no other way, no other access to who God is and relationship with God. Jesus builds as the master and glorious teacher that He is. He builds an airtight case for the exclusive nature of faith in Him. If you have known and seen Jesus, then you have known and seen the Father. This is last statement in verse 7. From now on, you do know Him and you have seen Him. And this is an amazing statement. In summary, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there can be no other way to God the Father except through Jesus Christ. In the last statement, Jesus makes an amazing statement. One that probably set the disciples back as much as any other statement he'd ever made. Did you catch it? From now on, you do know him, the Father. And what? You have seen him. You can't see God the Father. 
As a matter of fact, the witness of the Old Testament is no one shall see him and live. How have we seen him? How have we seen God the Father? Is it through nature? Well, we've seen a revelation that there must be a God of order because this place is orderly. But we haven't seen God himself in the nature, just the handiworks of his fingers. Maybe it's through morality, that other approach to God. Well, no, because though we see that there's a compulsion inside of everybody to wrong and right, and so therefore there must be an ultimate judge who's going to judge us because we have this wrong and right struggle. We can't know God. We can't see God through that morality. Maybe it's religion. That's what it is. No. No, religion focuses not on God, but on my efforts and my abilities. No, Jesus says, you know Him and you've seen Him because you've seen me. What I'm trying to tell you is Christianity is not a rule book whereby you might earn your way to heaven like all other religions. Christianity sits by itself. It is in a category to itself because the way is a man, a God-man. The truth is not in a, only in a book. It is a man, God in the flesh. And life is not contained in some force of the universe, but rather the power of a man, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. If you know Him, you know God. And you have seen Him. For all of eternity, we will see God the Father in the face of our Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, You are so gracious to have revealed Yourself.